Oh my gosh. I was hoping, I was worried that I wouldn't have enough material and I'm like literally halfway through and it's an hour and a quarter in. I have a lot of excitement for this kind of physics in particular. You will never catch me being excited about mechanics in general, but strange physics, what I call the field of strange physics, I'm here for. The field of normal physics and physics that affects my everyday life, I don't want it. I don't want that physics. <laughs> Welcome to Not Yet a Doctor, the podcast where we try and answer the question, does what go up really have to come down? (laughs) (laughs) My name is Beth, and I'm a PhD student studying particle physics at Sapienza University of Rome. My name is Alistair, and I'm a PhD candidate in analytical chemistry at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. And my name is Sienna. I am a PhD candidate in neuroscience at McGill University, Montreal, Canada. Yeah. How's it hanging this week, guys? You know, uh, downwards, like most things do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you might think so. Do they? I don't know. I wouldn't know. (laughs) By the end of this episode, you might or might not think something different. So hang around and find out. I have no idea what this episode is about. We should also say that we are your PhD three. To be! To be! <laughs> okay, so today's episode is a little bit of an episode in two parts. Um, so today we're going to be talking about antimatter, and honestly, you seem very excited by it. Yes, I think antimatter is, is fascinating. I really know nothing about it, but I just think it's really cool. Well, hopefully after this episode you'll know sl- slightly more. I would just like to say that I am antimatter because I am an anti who matters. Thank you, that is all. Oh, because you're... Oh. No further questions. Oh my God. <laughs> because your sister has oh a kid. Gosh. Yes. <laughs> my niece and nephew think I matter, so... Here I am, representing That's antimatter. That's really cute. It's not something that will work in my accent, but Thanks. it's still very cute. And there's the linguistics again. Oh, right, aunt. Um, Wait, yeah. this implies the existence of uncle matter. <laughs> yeah, where's the uncle matter? Um, this is a feminist mm-hmm. podcast. We are feminists here, and we believe that... Men are already significantly represented in in science, and if a man wants to talk about uncle matter, he's welcome to, but here on this podcast, we're going to talk about auntie matter. All right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, the first half of the the podcast is going to be a bit of a science history lesson, which I hope will be interesting and not dry. And then the second half of the podcast is going to be talking about very much science um, current. Is that the opposite of science history? Modern science? Up to date science? Science up to the moment? Anyway. At the cutting edge? Yeah. um, The cutting edge of science. That doesn't sound like a very nice thing. I don't really want to cut any of these edges with (laughs) science. Anyway, I'm going to be talking about experiments that are happening now hopefully that will also be interesting and hopefully i know enough about it to uh, make a good episode yeah i'm excited okay so we're in 1928 do you guys know in fact i should start off before anything else asking you what you do know about antimatter you go first sienna well oh my god okay so i believe that antimatter okay i don't believe i 
actually am unsure whether antimatter is the same thing or not as dark matter. Okay. Um, but uh, if there, I guess the idea is that if I have an atom of matter, like the matter that makes up me, yep, and it hits another atom of antimatter, then they can't would just cancel each other out, and there'd be nothing. And these two types of things must have been created in equal proportions at the Big Bang, but we can't find any of the antimatter, whereas we can find a lot of the matter. Yeah, that's actually a really good summary of what we know about antimatter. Um, and my theory is that our matter flew off in one direction and antimatter flew off in the other and we're on differing paths away from each other and that's why we can't find it and somewhere out there there's an anti-Siana who must probably be an uncle because that would be <laughs> the, the logical jump yes. there. <laughs> What's the opposite of a neuroscience? Scientist. I don't know. Maybe not. Who knows? Maybe humans made out of antimatter aren't even humans at all and are just like octopuses with tentacles for heads. Who's to say? <laughs> Who's to say what the opposite of a human is? I don't know. Who's to say it even has to be the opposite? What if it's just the exact same? Okay, I'm really hoping that all of this makes it into the podcast because this is a <laughs> top quality material. Your imagination, um, Santa, is just knows no bones. <laughs> tentacles for a head? Like, oh god. <laughs> Just like the edge of the universe, my imagination is constantly expanding. <laughs> oh my goodness. Alistair, I saw that you shook your head at one point. Do you want to clear up the the big piece of misinformation that was in Sienna's uh, hypothesis? Well, to be fair, I didn't say whether or not it was dark matter. I said I wasn't sure. It wasn't misinformation. I think Sienna <laughs> gave a very good explanation, and mine is not going to be perfect. Dark matter and antimatter oddly are not the same thing yep they are two okay. different things and beth you've kind of explained to me before how we can have like electrons and dark electrons and anti-electrons which i still don't fully understand but or photons or you know other things yeah. um i shook my head wildly because sienna's hypothesis that um at the big bang matter kind of went one way and antimatter went another way um is kind of what happened as far as I understand. I was listening to an audiobook of Stephen Hawking's recent book, uh, Brief Answers to Big Questions, and in it he kind of touches on the this idea that antimatter uh, exists in the universe, but it's in these kind of pockets of space where uh, like it, there's an uneven distribution of matter and antimatter. Uh -huh. um, mm -hmm. But I think, Sienna, your explanation of like if you have an atom, you have an anti-atom, and if they were to combine, they would annihilate or, you know, cancel each other out. Yes, that was a really good explanation. That's about the extent of my knowledge, too, okay. of antimatter. Is it possible, can I just ask a question, kind of theoretical question? Yeah. Is it possible the reason why it's so hard to find antimatter is because, like, if you have, like, say, antimatter and then there's some matter the spot where they hit each other, like the interface, starts cancelling out and creates a little cute bar of nothingness that then separates them, and they can't cross okay. over. And then you would have pockets of antimatter surrounded by nothing from like the interface of where the antimatter and matter cancelled out, and then you'd have a pocket of matter Okay, elsewhere. so we're about to reach the limit of my knowledge, and I'll probably have to go away and do some, <laughs> some checking up. I mean, this is a theoretical, pretty theoretical question. This might be the limit of anyone's knowledge. <laughs> Before I get on to um, where the antimatter may or may not be and how we know where it may or may not be, 
Um, I do want mm-hmm. to say, I want to clear up this dark matter, antimatter thing. Because it is, because I study dark matter. And um, mm-hmm. when I talk about my research, it's the number one thing that people say to me is, oh, is that the same as antimatter? <laughs> and being so engrossed in your own little speciality, you completely forget that like these things don't have very clear meanings to the general public and therefore they kind of all sound the same (laughs) Um, but I want to be clear that hopefully one day I'll do an episode about dark matter I'm not going to talk about it today because it is a completely different thing from antimatter that's all I'm going to say about dark matter today is that it's not antimatter so antimatter you're right is essentially the opposite of nor matter and what did you call it norm matter normal normal i heard norm and i was like normy matter <laughs> i mean we can call it norm like anybody <laughs> you know who's called norm will be will be made out of matter so it's also norm norman matter, matter. <laughs> norman matter, norman matter. <laughs> there was probably someone in the world named norman matter norman matter is what you have in the like ruined churches and abbeys and stuff in in the uk that come from never mind that's a history joke norman matter what i can see the blank faces coming back at me the normans were the french who invaded in oh the normans like from Normandy. oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. that was such a specific joke who knew that uh Medieval British history was a prerequisite for uh, following the podcast, not yet adult. <laughs> it is, um. It's not. <laughs> it is not. In fact, it, it might it might turn you off of our podcast. It might, it might be an anti-requisite. Oh, my God. Oh I'll be here all week. Okay. Okay. So, right. so you have matter and you have antimatter, which is not dark matter. Yes. And when matter and antimatter uh, meet, you're right that they destroy each other, but they don't create mm-hmm. nothing because uh, that would violate the Ooh. conservation of energy. And um, the conservation of energy okay. is one of the top three if not the top thing that you have to hold on and clutch dearly for life in physics um (laughs) physicists are really afraid of ever not being able to conserve energy this would really turn physics on its head so we won't do that we really care about our (laughs) conservation of energy so um please don't (laughs) please don't take that away from us so okay what do they create instead well they create huge amounts of energy and that's usually in the form of well in fact it can be in different forms depending on the different processes that it goes by quite Mm -hmm. often it will be photons that are produced um, Mm -hmm. which are light and they'll take away a lot of energy and so my feeling about the idea that the matter and the antimatter sort of separated like and there's just a space down the middle where they have met and they've annihilated and then there's like a gap between them i think that we think that that's not true because we would expect to see uh the light coming from that bit in the middle we'd be we'd expect to be able to detect the 
mm-hmm. consequences of that and we don't detect that. But I'm going to have to go away and check that out. Future Beth here. As promised, I went away and did some research on this question of antimatter bubbles after the episode. So I got in touch with the cosmologist, Professor Carlo Contaldi at uh, Imperial College London, who was very kind in responding to my email about this. And he told me that basically it's very difficult to come up with a theory uh, in which matter and antimatter bubbles are so large and so separate from each other that we wouldn't see the effects of annihilation between them when they came into contact with each other. So I found that very interesting. I thought you might like to know. You can read his response in detail in our bibliography uh, by following the link to our bibliography in the show notes or by finding the same link in our social media. So thank you very much to Professor Contaldi and now back to the main episode. I'm going to have to ask a question now. Is a photon not matter? Isn't matter anything that has mass and photons don't have mass? Oh, that's a possibility. That's a good, good physics knowledge. Because of the Higgs boson. Okay. Yeah. It's my understanding that matter is anything that has mass and photons don't have mass. So they're not matter. Well, this is a good question. And now if I don't know exactly what the definition of matter is, except for in... Uh, making it distinct from something else as opposed to dark matter or antimatter. Mm-hmm. So is a photon matter? Uh, well, in the context of matter or antimatter, um, that's actually a very good question because most people know that each particle has its own antiparticle, mm-hmm. but photons are their own antiparticle. Okay. So for some types of particles they can be their own antiparticle interesting very interesting not something that i'm going to go into in a great deal of depth not something that i've really (laughs) studied neutrino physicists would probably be disappointed if i didn't mention that one of the open questions about neutrinos is whether or not they are their own antiparticle Mm. so some particles don't have a kind of twin antiparticle they are Mm -hmm. their own antiparticle yeah so they're almost oh. like their own class of matter. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So we could have matter, antimatter, and I don't know. What would be another word? They're called Majorana particles. So, so Can we say that word again? What was that? Majorana. Majorana. After one of the, the researchers who sort of, the theorist who sort of invented the concept. Cool. Mm-hmm. The other type of particle, the normal type of particle... This leads me nicely into where I wanted to start 15 minutes into this conversation. (laughs) Here we go, Um, starting the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) The other type of particle is named after the person who first theorized the existence of antiparticles. He was, what's his name? Paul Adrian Maurice Dirac. I'm guessing, I think his mother was French. So, um... Paul Adrien Maurice Dirac. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sienna, you might do a better job like living in a French-speaking part of the world. Paul Adrien Maurice Dirac. There you go. Dirac is not like an obvious um, name to me for any sort of... Same. Like, okay. Like that almost like I feel like that would be more like 
Eastern European as a name. He's mm-hmm. faded I don't know into but. insignificance. That's good to know. Um, sorry. Paul. Sorry, Dirac. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> is, that, is that your take on it, Beth, or are you reading that from Wikipedia? Um, uh, no, that was just my take on Sienna's lack of <laughs> knowledge. Of oh, okay, okay. Born in Bristol, England. Died in Florida. There you go, sir. <laughs> I just think that's. Why are you laughing? I don't know. I'm pretty sure everyone dies in Florida. That's what I go to Florida to die, right? We all go to Florida to die. (laughs) Not because nothing against Florida, lovely place. Just a lot of nothing against dying in other places either. It's just that when you die, right before you die, your soul goes to Florida. Yeah. To depart the astral plane, okay? Yeah. This is a well-known fact. I mean, that's where the spaceships launch from, so obviously that's where your your soul launches from, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good jumping-off point for other things. Uh, Can someone re- remind me what the scope of this podcast originally was? I have no idea. The we limits talking- of Sienna's imagination. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the limits of Sienna's imagination. <laughs> uh, okay. In 1928, Dirac... Uh, is studying the Schrodinger equation and he mm. realizes that it predicts anti-electrons. So, okay, that's my first bullet point and that's a really useful bullet point except for the fact that I don't expect either Sienna or most of our audience to know anything about the Schrodinger equation. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Can I give a, my, what I, yeah, I think I know yeah. what it is? Tell us all the about Schrodinger the Schrodinger equation. equation. It's, a, it's a physics equation that Good. says that you <laughs> yes. can only know nope, that's one of two things. Like... Oh, dang it. Um, the Schrodinger <laughs> equation. I think people are familiar with like Schrodinger's cat. Yeah, but that's not really relevant either. Okay, the Schrodinger equation says that you can't know something unless you observe it, but then when you observe it, you change its state. Is that it? Not really. Oh, shoot. I was thinking of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, so mm-hmm. um... we'll cut this out. Because I don't <laughs> Alistair should know what the Schrodinger equation was because you studied quantum mechanics. But um, oh yeah, it seems a like long time ago. It seems like uh, his brain is made of mm, something not so absorbent. So we'll recap it. For <laughs> <laughs> Ouch! Really mean. I don't want that going in the book. <laughs> Beth is just roasting us. <laughs> Beth roasting me aside. Uh, okay, so in nineteen twenty-eight. Dirac is studying the Schrodinger equation, the relativistic Schrodinger equation, and okay. uh, he realizes that uh, you can use the Schrodinger equation to predict the existence of anti-electrons. So the Schrodinger equation is a key result that's come out of quantum mechanics and the study of quantum mechanics over the previous decades. And um, it's a really, really important result, and it's really successful in describing quantum systems. Um, oh, I have written a comment here. It says, it gives a quantum mechanical way of calculating the energy state of a system and how this will evolve over time. That's a much better uh, description. So a lot of people had tried to work out how to combine Einstein's special relativity with quantum mechanics and the Schrodinger equation um, and a lot of the efforts that had been made were 
not particularly, or they were, they were useful in some contexts, but they weren't general, and they didn't work in other contexts, and they had problems with them. Um, so Dirac managed to find a relativistic version of the, of the Schrodinger equation, which was very successful in making predictions about uh, various different things, including electron angular momentum and the hydrogen energy levels, which were problems that hadn't been solved by other equations. So his relativistic Schrodinger equation becomes known as the Dirac equation. And I spent mm -hmm. quite a lot of time trying to understand it and didn't really manage, <laughs> despite <laughs> having studied it in fourth year. And Can I just ask for a couple of like clarifications on things? Yeah. Yes, please do. So just generally, I think for our audience and for me as well. For anybody who hasn't studied quantum mechanics yeah what is quantum mechanics and what is the difference between like a quantum mechanical equation versus a relativistic equation okay those are two really good questions quantum mechanics is the study of very small things in fact that's not a very good description <laughs> quantum mechanics in my in please yeah sorry. well in our episode about uh, molecular orbitals i briefly described what quantum means quantum is Quanta is just a word for yeah. units of a thing. A unit. Yeah. And Small so choice. quantum mechanics yeah. is the mechanics, the movement, basically, yes. of mm -hmm. very discrete small things. Yes. So, like particles. Mm -hmm. So a quantum mechanical model is different from like how you think about classical physics of like a ball rolling down a hill. Um, that has momentum. It has velocity it has that kind of stuff but when we scale down to very 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 small systems when we're looking at particles they behave differently they actually don't obey the macro they, they don't, don't roll, roll down, down the, the hill. hill they have velocity so, in a different way is that kind of <laughs> and so that's why we have quantum mechanics yeah. is because it talks they about they still roll down the hill or they still go down the hill like they still end up at the bottom of the hill but how they get there is weird that they take a different path yeah yeah <laughs> and it leads to all kinds of and part of the time they might be a particle and the other part it might be a wave we don't know yeah <laughs> exactly and it leads to all kinds yes. of strange things um which maybe one day i'll talk about um but not today sorry i just want to put yeah. a little note yeah, yeah, for yeah, our yeah, listeners yeah. a big thing about this episode is antimatter is as i understand it quite a huge field and like it's quite a big topic so beth you're you're taking on a lot today <laughs> and like in order to understand antimatter you don't necessarily need to understand quantum mechanics, but there are these smaller things that, like, we gotta yeah. uh, break down. Nobody's expecting to leave this podcast an expert on particle physics or an expert on antimatter, but hopefully you'll have a little bit of a little a little knowledge. Yeah, tease your interest. Out. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> Impress your friends with your knowledge of antimatter. A little general knowledge about antimatter. <laughs> Bring it out mm. of your party piece. Yes, I think that was a very good description of what quantum mechanics is, Alistair. Thanks. So I hope that answers your first question, Sienna. Mm -hmm. um, special relativity, which you're right to bring me up on. I did not uh, define what that was or discuss it. Special relativity is the study of things that move very, very fast. Ooh. And so what Einstein did in the early 20th century was to think about what would happen if you were sitting on a beam of light or if you were sitting on something that was traveling very close to the speed of light and that kind of thing. If you want more information about the speed of light, then listen to our interferometry episode mm -hmm. uh, where I've discussed some of these things. 
But the point is that you get weird effects when you go to very small uh, objects, and that is where quantum mechanics comes into play. Mm-hmm. And weird effects happen when you travel very, very fast, very close to the speed of light, mm-hmm. and that's what special relativity is. So if I were to summarize this as a non-expert, who yep. now is somewhat yep. of an expert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, becoming more expert by the minute. <laughs> For our listeners, quantum mechanics means the behavior of very, very, very small bebs. And, <laughs> and special relativity is the behavior of very, very, very quick bebs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very small and very fast. Thank you for yeah. listening. I think, that's a, I think that's a good description. Okay. And obviously, well, I mean, physicists believe that uh, everything has to be consistent and uh, a lot of people are hoping still hoping for a grand unified theory which will be like essentially (laughs) one equation or one set of equations which will describe everything in the entire universe and that would be great like physicists but certainly what we don't (laughs) like is when you have an equation that works in one situation but not in another situation what we want is to be able to have an equation that works in every situation Mm-hmm. So having a quantum mechanical equation of state that tells you about what your particles are doing uh, is great. That's wonderful. Now you know something more. But if your particles are suddenly moving very, very fast and you don't get the right answers out of that, that mm-hmm. equation, then you've suddenly got a problem. So Dirac invented an equation to describe the small but speedy. Yeah. And I should probably <laughs> say, to give credit where it's due... Uh, there's another equation that uh, is also useful, but we're not talking about it today because it doesn't apply in this context, and it's not uh, it's not what we're talking about anyway. But he's not the only person to have created a relativistic uh, version of quantum mechanics, but he's the first person to have done it in a way that really works, let's say. So his equation was very successful, as I say, it predicted the uh, angular momentum of the electron mm-hmm. and uh, the energy levels that we see in the hydrogen atom, which were two things that the other equation I was talking about didn't do. And it turns out that that equation is useful for bosons, which are other things, mm-hmm. um, but not for fermions, which is what electrons and uh, protons are. Okay. But his equation predicts something strange. So in his equation, I mean, if you think about, for example, if you think about Einstein's most famous banger. E equals MC squared. (laughs) Einstein's greatest hit. (laughs) Exactly. Except, as people always do. We left out momentum. Just like how, yeah, exactly. Just like how um, In the Bible, it doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says that the want of money is the root of all evil. People shorten the actual equation and forget uh, half of the important part. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. We've talked about this before, Alistair. We've talked about this? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think in one of our podcasts, I don't know if it made it in, but definitely E equals MC squared plus momentum something also. Oh, Okay, we've, we've yes. recorded so many podcasts. I have also explained this to you. Oh, I do remember we, yeah. we had a whole yeah. tangent about 
momentum and yes no yeah. alistair you should really know the whole equation by now. Yeah, honestly alistair like if you don't know it now then I'm, I'm just i'm going i'm gonna give up i'm not part of this podcast anymore it's gonna be the phd2 to to be <laughs> we'll have to change our email um <laughs> i have so many equations in my head you think i keep einstein's yeah uh, kinetic energy of things Who cares about einstein okay. um anyway so <laughs> Uh, e equals mc squared is not mm-hmm. the full story. The full story is e squared, mm-hmm. and that's important, e squared is equal to m squared c to the 4 plus p squared c squared. Mm-hmm. And p is momentum. p is momentum, c is the speed of light, m is mass. M is mass. E, yeah. is, energy. e is energy. Energy, mass, momentum, speed of light. These are our e- ingredients. Exactly. And uh, obviously this has to be um, consistent with whatever Dirac comes up with, otherwise we'd have issues. <laughs> so if you take your equation with your energy squared mm-hmm. and you take the square root of it, mm-hmm. then what do you get? Well, you can either have positive or negative energy. Yeah, exactly. Uh... But this is mathematics, everyone who um, maybe has forgotten. Negative one times negative one, or, so the square... If you square negative one, you get one. But also, if you square one, you get one. So there's always two answers to any square root, which is the negative. You can either multiply the negative by the negative to get the number, or you can multiply the positive by the positive to get the number. So that's all I'm saying when I say you can either start with negative energy or positive energy. You could either have negative E times negative E, or you could have E times E, and the result is the same, E squared. Exactly. So Dirac did essentially what any good GCSE maths uh, student would do, which is to write down both the GCSE for people not in the UK is the exam you take when you're 16, so like high school maths, and he wrote down both the positive and the negative solution. But like it would be very easy to discount the negative energy solution, saying negative energies don't exist. That's meaningless. Mm-hmm. Forget about it. Mm-hmm. But he didn't. He wanted to to try and work out what these these states meant in a physical sense. So in 1929, the year, the year after, he wrote a new paper stating that uh, negative energy electrons would move in an electromagnetic f- field like an electron with positive charge. So basically what he's done is he's uh, applied Maxwell's equations, I assume, um, which talk about how electrons which have negative charge and other particles with positive charge, charged particles in general, how they interact with electromagnetic fields. And what he's done is he's taken these negative energy solutions and he said, this is exactly the same as if you had a particle with the same mass as an electron, Mm -hmm. but the opposite charge. Right. He also pointed out that there was a big problem with the idea of having negative energy particles. Um, He says, a negative energy electron will have less energy the faster it moves and will have to absorb energy in order to be brought to rest. No particles of this nature have ever been observed. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine this is problematic because like I said before, the conservation of energy is something we hold very dear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so if you're saying that you 
get more energy by taking away energy and you get less energy by adding energy then that's yeah kind of problematic a little bit wonky <laughs> yeah a little bit wonky exactly <laughs> so Dirac came up with a solution and he thought that all of the negative energy electron states in the universe are filled except perhaps quote except perhaps a few of small velocity so there's another equation another principle um, from Pauli who I talked about in the neutrino episode Pauli's exclusion principle says that you can't have uh, more than one fermion which is what an electron is it's a Mm -hmm. specific type of particle Mm -hmm. you can't have more than one of them in exactly the same quantum system quantum state in a system mm-hmm. so you can't have two electrons with exactly the same energy mm-hmm. in a system so that means if there are electrons in all of the energy states from minus infinity up to zero then you can't have any you can't detect any um, electrons transiting to one of these negative energy states because they're all filled up hmm. does that make sense Mm-hmm. So because kind of. so the Pauli exclusion principle is basically like two electrons can't have the same address, right? Like they can't. All yeah. electrons are unique. Yes, exactly. Like snowflakes. Yeah. Yeah, like some of them have got a nice pink bow, and some of them have got a nice blue bow, and some of them have earrings, and some of them don't have earrings. And... Because mm-hmm. Dirac is saying that all of the anti-electron states are filled, except for a few with low velocity, but because like you said, from zero to negative infinity, all the negative electrons are filled, anti-electrons. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't be able to detect these moving or changing because... They aren't. There's no space they, for them can't to do have, that. There's no space. All the, all exactly. the, all the exactly. addresses are filled. You know, all, exactly. all the combinations are there. You know how you can have, like, marbles in a marble board? And yeah. you can, like, put them in the little, like, divots the marble fits in? Beth, have you ever seen what I'm talking about? No, I was thinking of Connect Four. Yeah, like Connect Four, even. If you have all of your six in a column, you can't, mm-hmm. you just, you can't put one there if there's no space for it. Yeah. You yeah. can't yeah. take one from another column and put it into a column with no space. So you'll never be able to see your hand yeah. move from one column to the other because you can't do it. There's no space to put it there. Yeah, so you'll never be able to de- detect that mm-hmm. change. So then uh, he considered that these negative energy particles, which would have positive charge, um, he thought they might be protons Mm -hmm. because protons were the only known particles at that time with positive charge. Mm -hmm. Can you guys see the big problem in this? So my first big, whoa, man, maybe don't go there issue with this is the like, huge difference in mass yeah Yeah. exactly that's what i was gonna say i could be a physicist (laughs) 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 do you guys know what the difference in mass actually is between an electron and a proton orders of orders of magnitude like millions (laughs) yeah one I, i have it from google which is one one thousand pretty much one in two thousand the weight of a proton the mass of a proton so two thousand times yeah exactly Exactly, as uh, all good particle physicists should know, the weight of an electron is, the mass of an electron is 
511 kiloelectron volts in the units that we use, mm. and a proton is one gigaelectron volt, so it's about 2,000 times heavier. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, congratulations, Sienna, points to you. Yes. So he realised this problem in, in the same article, like he isn't naive to this, um, but he, he says that he just hopes that it will be solved, essentially, this problem. Me with all my problems. I was gonna say. <laughs> Very relatable sentiment. Like, I have a problem, and I, honestly, I hope it'll be solved. It'll just be solved someday. Um, are your problems also of a fundamental nature, of fundamental importance to the understanding of the universe? I think so. Yes. <laughs> well, then, well, then, let's hope that they get solved. <laughs> Okay, so here enters another reasonably famous scientist who you guys probably still would have ever heard of because he's a famous... He's famous in the particle physics world, but, like... <laughs> I also don't expect you guys to under, like, know famous neuroscientists. <laughs> I mean, like, as we've already moral. discovered, the yeah. fame is not so far-reaching outside of the <laughs> niche world of particle physics. Anyway, um, his name is Robert Oppenheimer. Um, oh, I've, I know Oppenheimer. Yeah, he I've heard was, of Oppenheimer. I think I've heard okay, of Oppenheimer. Okay, he was important in the Manhattan Project, which is... Uh, exactly, that's why we've all heard of Oppenheimer. Yeah, there <laughs> Right. But he was very against the idea of this, um, pro of the proton being uh, an anti-electron. And in 1930, he says... According to Dirac's suggestions, the filling of the proton gaps of, in the distribution of negative electrons should correspond to the annihilation of an electron and a proton, and should thus, under all normal, normal conditions, be a very rare occurrence. Thus, we should hardly expect any states of negative energy to remain empty. If we return to the assumption of two independent elementary particles of opposite charge and dissimilar ma mass, we can resolve all the difficulties raised in this note and retain the hypothesis that the reason why no transitions to negative energy occur, either for electrons or positrons, is that such states are filled. So he's like, uh, annihilating an electron and a proton, we can't, like, we don't see that happening. So I don't mm -hmm. think that that really makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So he's like, we should have, instead, we, we should... Um, return to the idea that the two particles are both elementary, so that means that they're not made up of anything, and they are independent, so they're different particles, of opposite charge and dissimilar mass. So according to our current understanding of antimatter, uh, he gets one thing right and one thing wrong here. So opposite <laughs> charge is right, but dissimilar mass is wrong. So we... Mm believe, and I'll come on to talk about this later, that the mass of a positron, the mass of an anti-electron, is the same as the mass of the electron. It's probably the easiest way to get them to annihilate. Yeah, exactly. Even to me, that makes more logical sense than not. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if you think about, like, it makes kind of intuitive mm -hmm. sense, even though we know that, like, intuition is not necessarily the best thing to guide us in these circumstances hasn't but like, always helped in physics but sometimes it has I mean, <laughs> yes. you kind of have to develop a new sense of intuition um mm -hmm. but like certainly if we think about it naively and you think about mass being like an amount of stuff 
And it kind of makes sense that you'd need the same amount of anti-stuff <laughs> to annihilate with some stuff, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. That kind of makes sense. So, one more year later, so Dirac is really on a publishing spree. He publishes in 28, 29. Good for him. Oppenheimer publishes in 1930. And then in mm-hmm. 1931, Dirac publishes another paper um, noting that it's been shown that the negative energy particle has to have the same mass as the electron. Um, mm-hmm. And he coins the term anti-electron. And uh, that, friends, is how the anti-electron came to be theorized. Uh, so that is kind of the... Welcome to the world, anti-electron. Yeah, exactly. Long gestation. <laughs> Should we... <laughs> Do you have charge reveal parties for particles? <laughs> what about a mass reveal party? I guess you're just like, congratulations, you gave birth to an anti-electron. This is how much it weighs. It's yes. the same as an electron. <laughs> positively charged particle now please do not yes. uh, let off a flare that causes massive yeah, please don't burn down <laughs> for us uh. Oof, okay. <laughs> moving swiftly forward <laughs> yes going on so that is how in the space of three years we went from not having any theoretical understanding of any of this stuff to mm-hmm. um, having a theoretical new particle wow. cool that's exciting. Yeah. Dirac says, we should not expen- expect to find any of them in nature on account of their rep- rapid rate of recombination with electrons. Makes sense. But if they could be produced experimentally in high vacuum, they would be quite stable and amenable to observation. Oh, that'd be kind wow. of funny. Yeah. So he's saying, given that they annihilate so easily with electrons, we don't think that we'll find loads of them in nature. Like, you can't, like, if you take your magnifying glass, we probably Sienna. <laughs> mm-hmm. Given that our nature is made of electrons. <laughs> it's probably yeah, not well, around. Exactly. Well, exactly. But that's, yeah. No, it makes total sense. I love the logic. Yeah, it's a really <laughs> important point to, to bring up that, like, it has to, obviously science has to be compatible with what we see. So, yeah, he's right that um, we don't expect to see a lot of them and we don't see a lot of them, so that's probably good. Okay, so... Oh, in fact, oh, I've got, I've got a nice um, bullet point on how to create positrons in a moment, but I'm just going to, let me get through these next couple of bullet points first, and then I will um, give you a home science kit to make some positrons. Um, really? Make positrons yeah, really. at home? Okay, I'm ready. Yeah. Isn't that dangerous? Okay, okay. I'm going to do it. So if, I, if you guys don't hear from me in the future about this <laughs> podcast, just know I have a ni- self-annihilated, and that's fine. Okay, well... <laughs> Good luck, Sienna. I created an anti-Sienna. <laughs> and then you and the anti-Sienna. Not an anti-Sienna. I was already an anti-Sienna. Um, okay, well, uh, we'll see how that goes for you, Sienna. Wait, does this mean um, the next time that we record the podcast, we're not going to know if it's Sienna or anti-Sienna? How will we know? You gotta, well, we got to figure out a code right now so that if you create anti-Sienna, we can tell you from your clone. If we can see okay. her and she hasn't annihilated, then she's Sienna. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sienna. If all we can see is a great big burst of energy... But what if... What if anti-Sienna didn't annihilate? What if anti-Sienna just, like, used a stick to push Sienna off of this, a cliff oh, or something mm-hmm. and then replace her? But, like, her how, how are you going the through the world without touching any of it? Yeah, how would anti-Sienna grab the stick? <laughs> Bubble wrap. 
gosh. A vacuum, as I told you, I am highly stable and amenable to under okay, like, observation in like, a vacuum. We're going to get on to this because this is going to be... I'm sorry. No, this but is like, too, no, but... This is definitely not a physically possible. <laughs> but it, beca- it kind of becomes important. Like, this is probably unusable. This okay. might be unusable material. But, like, it does become important because, like, if you want to create some antimatter... Like, if it's charged, then okay, because you can stop it from falling or touching anything with mm-hmm. electric fields. Mm-hmm. If it's not charged, it's more difficult. Like, there are still things that you can do, but it's a lot more difficult. So if you created a, an anti-Sienna, good luck with not getting her <laughs> to touch... Anything. Anything. Yeah. Anything. I'll make her in a vacuum, okay? We can all observe her together. <laughs> uh, I wanted to go back a little bit to... Um, the interpretation. So I'm going to go on to talk about this discovery of the um, positron in a sec. But I just wanted to talk a bit about the interpretation of um, uh, having negative energy, like mm-hmm. holes, essentially, um, which would represent the the positrons, which was Dirac's interpretation, his like view of the world of what it physically meant. In 1942, um, which is 14 years after uh, Dirac first got his equation out, which is not that long, I think, um, a guy called Stuckelberg wrote a paper, which then Richard Feynman took up Mm -hmm. in 1949. And their interpretation of the Dirac equation is that a particle is identical to its relative antiparticle, except with the antiparticle traveling backwards in time. Oh, that's very cool. Which is a big mind bender. Yeah, which mm-hmm. I kind of haven't quite completely got my head around myself. That's, yeah. Uh, but, like, if you think about it. But, like, it's cool. It's though, cool, right? but if you think about it, it's all, like, I mean, time as a physics thing is so different from what time as, like, a human experience is, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, and yeah, if you think about true. it, there could, like, if there was an anti-world with anti-people, they would probably have a very similar experience of time as we do, whether or not it looks to us like their physics is all wonky of time. Their time physics is backwards or moving the other way. But then... Like, they still might... I'm not sure that's true because... But then, like, this is why, this is why I kind of don't really understand this, this interpretation mm-hmm. in general, because... Time has to go forward. That's what the second, I hope, law of thermodynamics tells us, that uh, entropy always increases, and therefore the direction of increasing entropy is the direction Mm of time, essentially. I feel like I've had conversations with Alistair about that law before, and the possibility, potentially, of other universes not obeying that law, like... That is a law for us and for our universe, but like, and it works really well for us, but like, why couldn't there be a universe where the law is that entropy has to decrease over time? I mean, maybe, but like I say, then you have to completely disregard all of, like, if you... Their physicists would probably hate (laughs) our world and its physics. I'm I'm not hating it, I'm just saying, like... (laughs) Not hate it, but we would be scared. Like, I'm not... It's not that I'm scared about it. It's that, like, then nothing that we know is true. Like, 
But would that be so surprised? What we know, we, well, I mean, like, the thing is, what we know works really, really well for what we know. Sure, but, like, sure, there could, there could be a universe And for our which... universe, right? But there's no reason why what we don't know would work really, really well for what we don't know. And why those two things, if we ever did know both of them, couldn't then work well together in a different way. Maybe, but we will never know. And therefore, yeah. I like, don't I mean, the really fact care. that antimatter and matter we know annihilate each other could be like then a really interesting like parallel to that would be a universe where entropy decreases over time would annihilate a universe where entropy increases over time. Like it could just be. But then, like you'd go an extension of that idea. You'd presumably like start off as a huge disordered universe and then go forwards in time until you're a singularity and like I don't get how that would but why is that any more crazy than what's happening with our universe which is we started off as a singularity and are expanding our universe is pretty damn wild but um Anyway, yeah. that's not the universe and, that we like, live in. Because it's happening, we can study it and understand it and explain it. But, like, if it was happening the other way, we might also be able to study it, understand it, and explain it and be like, could you imagine a world where it started as a singularity? No, that would be crazy. I mean, yeah, I guess. Not a but physicist, like, I, though. I think the thing so. is, like, multi-universe theory aside, um, or parallel universe theory aside, mm-hmm. um, in our current universe... Yeah, yeah. If mm-hmm. antimatter moved backwards in time, we would be able to observe that, and mm-hmm. or like observe that, or like it fundamentally disobeys the laws of our universe. Mm-hmm. But I have a then I have actually a, probably a better, more like within the realm mm-hmm. of our universe question about this. Okay, would be that like at the fundamental level, from what I understand, time isn't actually its own. Like there is no. Th- time doesn't exist alone it's space time right uh so like wouldn't it just travel differently through space time than it would like kind of i think but then i'm not really sure it it bends my mind and i don't really understand it but that's um the movement of electrons or anti-electrons mirrors yeah the movement of electrons so if you only viewed an anti-electron it might look like an electron moving backwards in time backwards in time yeah but so relative to its sure. own movement it's moving forward yeah. in time yeah so so this is the, like this is kind of currently the mainstream interpretation of it if somebody understands it better than me then please send us an email to phd32b at gmail.com because i would love to be mm-hmm. taken out of my ignorance um mm-hmm. but it's led to the way that we draw Feynman diagrams mm-hmm. like this very attractive one from that I just bought as a sticker from uh, Science Scribbles. I bought two badges and a sticker and now I have to try and find the sticker. Hang on a sec. If you are wondering, obviously we'll have photos Mm -hmm. on our Instagram at notyetadr on Instagram and Facebook. Um, But if you're wondering what Feynman diagrams look like, it's actually incorporated into the logo of our podcast. So Mm -hmm. just look at your device right now and you can see in it's part of the cool. orbit. There's a interpretation of a Feynman diagram. Yeah. Oh, that's super cute. It is cute, isn't it? So the important thing about Feynman diagrams mm-hmm. is that 
time runs from left to right. And so in this um, sticker where you can see the annihilation, uh, you can see that the arrows are representing the directions in time that the particles are traveling in. So the arrows for the positrons are all pointing towards the left and the arrows for the electrons are all pointing towards the right, which shows that the electrons are traveling forward in mm -hmm. time and the positrons are traveling backwards in time. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of diagram that particle physicists draw to make sense of pretty much any uh, process. Cool. And we end up using them for calculations, in fact. So they're not just descriptive, they're also uh, used in a quantitative mm. manner. Uh, one year after uh, Dirac's final positron paper, so that's in 1932, four years after he'd mm -hmm. first started working on this stuff, a guy called Carl Anderson discovered the positron um, in cosmic rays. And the day that he discovered the the positron is a very important day for one member of your PhD3 to be. Mm -hmm. um, Alistair, would you like to guess which day the positron discovered the positron was discovered? Uh, it was discovered in in the summer. In, in yeah. Uh, wait, are you asking me because it's on my birthday? Yeah, it's on your birthday. <laughs> <laughs> it's discovered in the beginning of August. I hedged my bets because Sienna, your birthday is also in the summer, and so like yeah, so. So, I hedge my bets because I'm really bad with birthdays. <laughs> I don't know what people's birthdays are. It was discovered on Alistair's birthday except for 63 <laughs> years <laughs> before he was born. Cool. So the positron was discovered by Carl Anderson? Yep. In cosmic rays. In cosmic rays. Now okay. we get to the hands-on experiment part of this episode. I love yes. hands-on science. Okay, let's do it. Let's hear it. Okay, all right. Um, I think that physics uh, is often, especially particle physics, is often not considered to be like a science that you can get your hands on and like, that you can get your kids involved in, you know? Yeah. Like, it's not chemistry. It's not like kitchen chemistry. It's not like going down to like the local pond to see the wildlife or whatever mm -hmm. you know it's a bit more difficult to, but here's an experiment that you can do at home mm -hmm. to produce some positrons okay. if you want to produce some positrons mm -hmm. first of all you have to sit there okay and then you produce some positrons <laughs> This okay. is why people don't like doing physics bad. It's too much like regular living. <laughs> we use science to escape regular life, Beth, not to not to sit there and feel it. This is interesting. So we produce positrons. Yeah. So, so potassium forty is a beta plus emitter, which means that it's it's uh, radioactive, and as it decays, it produces positrons. Oh wow! Which is really interesting. So according to this website, sciencedemonstrations.fas.harvard.edu, mm -hmm. Harvard, that rings a bell. I've never heard of it. Oh, never mind. Must be a, an English thing. I think, I think it's the McGill of uh, America. <laughs> mm, yes. Oh, is that what it is? That makes sense. <laughs> what, you mean like a second-rate uh, small university? 
<laughs> Beth is just riffing on us today. Jeez. Look, it's not Oxbridge, but... <laughs> According to this website, apparently there is about 0.0169 grams mm-hmm. of potassium-40 mm-hmm. in a 70-kilo adult. Okay. Mm-hmm. I am not doing the conversions to pounds because no, I don't okay. know them. So Americans, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to look it up for yourselves. Yeah, that would be like having weighed not point not one grams of stuff before. Alistair, you would probably also know this. That's just like a few, like that would just be like a few grains of sugar. It's a few milligrams, yeah. Most. 17 milligrams. But like if you were to picture that as an amount of sugar, it would just be like a couple of grains, a few grains. Yeah, yeah. So there's not very much. A few, few grains of sugar, yeah. In an average, 70 kilos yeah. is like an average human. So that's like, I don't yeah. know, I'd say 140 pounds, but, 150 pounds. But you can like, you could pick, at least you can picture the yeah. amount. It's a yeah. picturable, you would be able, it's a seeable oh, yeah. amount, in fact, if you, if you um crystallized yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It is, it's a seeable amount of potassium 40. Yeah. A um, crystal of sugar, if you But will. fortunately, fortunately, it's not all on the tip of your nose because that would be a bit more mm. obvious. Um, I have no idea how it's distributed. Oh, well, we have a ton... Um, I don't know. Potassium ions just chill everywhere. around in our extracellular fluids. Yeah, it's everywhere. It's dissolved. Like Please. everywhere? Okay, so it's distributed yeah. everywhere, apparently. Yeah. Dissolved, But, though. sorry, potassium-40... Let me just get out my periodic table. <laughs> potassium-40 is not the most abundant isotope. Is it? No, but that's no. why there'd be. That's why there's so little. There's definitely more potassium in our bodies. So there's a lot of potassium in right. our bodies, a lot, yep. relatively. But then Relative there's amount. even less of potassium forty because it's not the most abundant isotope, right? Different elements of different isotopes, different numbers of neutrons. Right, because it's radioactive. Right. So if you had bananas out on your counter, presumably those are also emitting positrons. Yeah, those are radioactive. Cool. I think this is, um, maybe this is a nice one to go directly after the Oxidane episode, which if you haven't heard yet, definitely go back and listen to it. Mm-hmm. Maybe finish this one first, but then <laughs> go back to listen to the Oxidane. Don't listen to these in order. That's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, they're not designed to be listened in order. No. So, like, if people just happen to come in at this particular episode... Mm-hmm. I would really recommend going back to listen to Alice's ex- explanation of oxidane. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really nice to um, point out here that, like, we're talking about something that's inside of your body that you haven't put there that you've just, like, got through living and yeah. eating. and It's a part of existence, part of yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. That is radioactive. Mm-hmm. That is producing radiation. And that's okay. Yeah. And that's okay. And I think... According to this Harvard Science Demonstrations website, there is 0.0169 grams of potassium-40 in a 70-kilogram adult, which decays at a rate of 266,000 atoms per minute. Mm -hmm. And 89% of those atoms will release positrons. The rest of the radioactive decay is gamma emission. If you remember your high school radioactivity. High school radioactivity? What high school did you go to? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I went to radioactive high. uh, Radon high? So 89% of the 266,000 atoms per minute 
produce positrons. Let's do some mental maths or ask the computer to do, to do <laughs> some mental maths for us, which I usually find a more reliable way of doing things. Apparently, 395 positrons are produced per second in the body of a 70 kilogram human. Okay. So. Wow. That's quite a lot of positrons, isn't it? That's a lot of positrons. But, like, think about how many electrons there are in the body of a 70 kilogram human. Yeah, that's true. If you consider 395... Like, if you did the relative ratio... Yeah, 395 of... electrons is not very many electrons. We ha- do have electrons to spare, I guess, <laughs> for annihilation purposes. Now, question. <laughs> yep. When they do annihilate, yep. because they will... Yep. They will produce photons. Yes. So that means mm-hmm. there's a very, very small, probably almost imperceptible amount of light that we produce from this mm-hmm. potassium decay. That's true. Oh, we're producing light. So when somebody says that you're glowing. <laughs> yeah, you might actually be. <laughs> it's just because you have a lot of potassium. Okay, now we get on to the science current which is what mm-hmm. I'm considering the alternative to science history. Mm-hmm. So one of the people that we follow on Instagram as a podcast posted a while back about an experiment called Aegis. They want to test what's called the weak equivalence principle. Mm-hmm. And the weak equivalence principle can be stated in a lot of different ways. But one of the ways that I found on Wikipedia that comes from a book called five-dimensional physics apparently by Paul S. Wesson. He says all test particles at the alike space-time point in a gravitational field will undergo the same acceleration independent of their properties including their rest mass. So basically the point is that gravity acts the same for all matter and that's what they're trying to test. So no matter your your rest mass, no matter any of your fundamental properties, if I stick you in a gravitational field, you will fall the same. Mm. So that is, that's certainly what you're taught in classical physics, that the acceleration due to gravity is constant for a constant gravitational field. Mm-hmm. And at the surface of the Earth it is, approximately. Uh, oh, we had this in an earlier episode and I completely yeah. botched it. It's negative, I want to say 9.8 Yeah. meters I mean, per second negative, squared. Yeah, negative depending on which direction you define us up. But yeah, 9.8 meters per second squared. So that's the acceleration due to gravity at the surface of the Earth or around the surface, mm-hmm. of, surface of the Earth. Okay, so now, so, so now we kind of come back to full circle to what we were talking about at the very beginning. So why is it important to know... Uh, whether gravity really acts the same for all matter. Well, I mean, apart from it being a fundamental physics question that we haven't yet answered, um, we also have this baryogenesis problem to solve. Mm-hmm. And baryogenesis is the fancy name for like loads of matter having been produced when antimatter wasn't, or at least matter mm-hmm. being allowed to remain when antimatter doesn't essentially mm-hmm. that's the big question that that surrounds antimatter and there are lots of different parts of 
fundamental physics that are trying to test that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like the most kind of conventional way of answering it is uh, not what I'm going to talk about. Okay. It's called charge, uh, charge priority time and symmetry, CPT symmetry. And I'm not going to talk about it. That's all. <laughs> okay. Instead, today I'm going to talk about uh, anti-gravity or the potential for anti-gravity. Um, okay. And so I, when uh, I, I looked at this experiment that's called Alpha-G, I don't know what it stands for, I probably should, but I don't. And they are trying to test the effect of gravity on anti-hydrogen. Mm-hmm. So they say anti-hydrogen is a useful experimental sy- system for performing equivalence tests owing to its com- complete composition of antimatter as well as its nominal charge neutrality which reduces a large number of practical and fundamental sources of systematic error and measurements. So they say that anti-hydrogen is useful, is a useful way of studying anti-gravity because it's completely antimatter, so you don't have to mm-hmm. um, try and disentangle effects from partly matter and partly anti-ma- antimatter. Cool. And it's also neutral in charge, mm-hmm. which means that you don't have systematic effects from from charges and electric fields and that kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. But you said earlier that a difficulty of producing antimatter that is not charged yep. is containing it. Yeah. That's absolutely true. Okay. So it's very complicated and I don't fully understand it, but the bottom line is that fundamental particles that make up our matter particles mm-hmm. So the ones that make up atoms and stuff like that, they're all fermions. Mm -hmm. And that means they have one half spin. So they have like some amount of angular momentum. You can consider it like um, spinning around on on your own axis. Mm -hmm. And they have some angular momentum. And that angular momentum causes them to have what's called a magnetic moment. Mm -hmm. So they interact with magnetic fields, even though they're not charged. Mm -hmm. Right. Check out our episode on NMR and MRI to find out more about yeah, how exactly. charges magnetic exactly. moments work. Magnetic moments and charges. Um, yeah. Somehow I'd completely forgotten that we'd done that. If that's not true, so, I just forgot that it came up in that episode. So basically you can use magnets to contain an anti-hydrogen. Yeah, now, exactly. just to clarify, an anti-hydrogen... Yeah. So hydrogen is made up of yes. a proton, a neutron, and an electron. Nope. Mm-hmm. Alistair, That's do deuterium. you want to go back to high school? <laughs> high school chemistry. Hydrogen is made up of a proton and an electron. Yes, right? well done. Mm-hmm. So anti-hydrogen would be an anti-proton. Mm-hmm. Don't know what... That's also probably known as something else, but... And an anti-electron, which is also known as yeah. a positron. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. The positron is the only particle that has a special name. All of the other particles are just called... Anti- Honestly, it's confusing. Anti- call it an anti-electron. Don't call it a positron. I'm sorry. It wasn't me. Well, what, but what if we called it a positron and a negatron? Yeah, a, me- a megatron. Then it's a transformer. A yeah, a negatron. <laughs> I, think, um, I think Oppenheimer wanted to call it a negatron, but uh, maybe I'm wrong. Oh. I don't know. Like other people have said that before. I'm sorry, Sienna, you're not that original. Okay. Anyway, no, that's um, okay. I can try and call it an anti-electron if you want me to. It, it just... No, no. We can call, both, whatever. both mean the same thing. Um, but yeah. so an anti-hydrogen mm-hmm. is uh, an anti-proton and an anti-electron, and you can keep it contained using mm-hmm. magnets. Cool. 
Exactly. Using complicated cool. magnetic fields. Yes. And you have to be very clever to work out how to how to do that. I'm sure. So <laughs> all of this episode has been a build up to these like four bullet points that I've put down for this <laughs> complex, incredible experiment. Mm-hmm. So according to the to this collaboration, how much could gravity vary by? Apparently the theory runs the gambit between large violations being possible, which means approximately mm-hmm. tens of percent, to limits below ten to five percent. So if there's a difference between mm, gravity and anti gravity, we don't mm-hmm. have a good idea of what it might be, basically. Mm. They produce their anti-hydrogen by uh, combining plasmas of uh, positrons and antiprotons. And if you haven't listened to our episode on plasma, go and have a listen. It's one of our uh, best episodes, in my opinion. Uh, We cover all Um, the things. (laughs) We have so many episodes on all this stuff. Yeah, so they produce anti-hydrogen by combining plasmas of positrons and antiprotons and then they trap Mm -hmm. it like we say in a magnetic field like combination of magnetic fields Mm -hmm. so then what they do is they turn off the trap and they measure the vertical position of annihilation events at various times after after the turn off essentially and they measure where the annihilations happen as a proxy for the uh, anti-hydrogen position at a particular time. Uh-huh. I think I so see where they, this is going, but go on. Yeah, so they do all this like complicated statistical analysis, which I won't go into in much depth. Thank you. <laughs> but they do these simulations. So for our listeners, because they won't necessarily be able to see this. So we're looking at this plot which has the displacement, the vertical displacement of the annihilation on the y-axis and the time after the turning off of the magnetic trap on the x-axis. And what we can see is that for the, uh, for the antimatter, in the case that antimatter is 100 times more strongly affected by gravity than matter, um, at the end of the 30 milliseconds, the average position of annihilations is about minus 15 millimeters below the center of the trap. Whereas for uh, the black dashed line, which shows uh, what would happen if gravity works exactly the same for matter and antimatter, it remains pretty much uh, exactly zero all the way through. And uh, so the green is simulated events and the red is real events. Mm-hmm. And the Green and the black solid line are what you would expect if gravity was a hundred times stronger for antimatter than for matter. Mm-hmm. And so what you can see is that as time goes on, the positrons drop, which is kind of obvious. But um, it's it's quite important to to do these simulations because it's actually quite a complex experiment because for example the black dashed line is what you would expect um, according to the simulations if 
gravity worked the same for matter and antimatter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the black dashed line is remains about zero for the whole 30 millisec- milliseconds of the experiment. So anyway, mm-hmm. all of this is to say that they, mm-hmm. um, they then do some other clever statistical analysis on this and they try to come up with a value of the ratio between the strength of gravity for normal matter and the strength of gravity for antimatter, for normal hydrogen and for anti-hydrogen. Mm-hmm. And this is basically what they've done as a proof of concept. So they're not, uh, they haven't yet got their systematics uh, to zero. So be gentle when I tell you <laughs> that their current bounds for the ratio of the strength of anti-gravity to the strength of normal gravity is between mm-hmm. less than minus 65 times, like less than 65 times in the opposite direction mm-hmm. and less than 110 times in the same direction. I think if I understand that. So it's between negative 65 and negative 110? And positive 110, if I understand oh. the results correctly. Um, so, like, definitely compatible with one. So there's the potential that anti-gravity affects our matter. Anti-gravity affects matter? No, it would be how gravity affects antimatter. How gravity mm-hmm. affects antimatter. So they haven't ruled out the possibility that gravity makes antimatter go upwards instead of downwards mm-hmm. and it could go upwards 65 times more strongly than uh, normal matter goes downwards interesting we don't know yet yeah but it could also go downwards is that but it could it also, could go, also downwards. go downwards and it could also go downwards up to 110 times more strongly than normal matter goes downwards cool so that's what is meant by the 65 and 110. It's not that it could go downwards yep. 65 times slower or 110 times faster. From what I understand, I hope I'm not getting this wrong now, but yeah, I think so. And this is just antimatter being affected by gravity. Sorry, just to, just to yep. clear it all in my head, because there's yep. antigravity and gravity, yep. and then there's antimatter and matter. And... I mean, antigravity is just like what we call gravity in the opposite direction gravity for antimatter oh okay so when gravity yeah. is affecting so, so it's probably the same gravity it's just affecting a different population oh, okay okay so yeah. when gravity is affecting anti-hydrogen we call it anti-gravity and it can yeah and I it mean, can cause it to go up it's not really a technical term but yeah or down yeah uh it's potent so okay so this ratio which is called f is given by the ratio of the gravitational mass to the inertial mass. And so that means that if it's negative, I think it would mean that it, it would go in the opposite hmm. direction. Interesting. That's really cool. Because it like going downwards but sixty five times more slowly would would just be a fraction. Yeah, I think so. So that is it. Do you guys want a quiz? Always. I am not prepared for a quiz, but I do want one. I, we, we talked about so <laughs> we much. We have gone over so much. Yeah, like we've gone through a lot. I wasn't expecting, like, I, I just, it is so interesting how these episodes take on a life of their own. We covered so much anti-material. <laughs> <laughs> but before we do the quiz, shall we um, 
plug our socials and yeah. tell people how they can reach Let's, out to us and yeah. tell tell us about yeah let's have a quick plug before we go for the quiz uh we just like to uh, let you all know that we'd love it if you want to get in touch our social media is at not yet a dr on facebook instagram and twitter and our email address is phd32b at gmail.com that's phd32b at gmail.com and uh if you have anything to say about any of our episodes please do get in touch, especially if it's nice. Mm-hmm. And we re- um, Beth is in charge of our social medias and she responds really, really fast. So that's mm-hmm. really nice. And I, if you did want to get, we would also, Alistair and I are on call. Yes, we are reachable. <laughs> I am social media obsessed yes. and I am always on my phone. So if you have a question, you can be sure that I will respond. And if it's a question for one of the others, you can be sure that I will get them in. To yeah. As Sienna says, they are on call. <laughs> All right, hit me um, with that quiz. I'm ready. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. I can't um, wait to remember how many names I've forgotten already during this episode. <laughs> <laughs> there are quite a lot of names. Okay, let's start with a name. Oh, before, before we do, we have to hear your buzzer sound. Okay, I thought of this one way earlier. Um, so this is my buzzer sound. Wow. And it's traveling. It's, okay. it's me traveling at the speed of light. Just wow. like Einstein did okay. in okay. his theories. Yes. Yeah, just like Einstein did. Um, that's a, that's a great yes. one. <laughs> Who's worried that you're going to say something like, um, uh, it's the sound of a rocket being powered by antimatter. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to have to go and debunk all of that. But no, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sienna. Oh yeah, no. So then mine is going to be, which is the sound that the, um, lopsided antimatter bubble at the center of the galaxy makes probably. <laughs> that's very interesting because um, my next episode will be much more related to that sound cool. but um, uh, no spoilers <laughs> okay question one in 1928 who was it who produced the first <laughs> relativistic Schrodinger <laughs> equation no please let me and the electrons. yes Alistair Alistair it can was, do the last uh, name but I want to do the first three <laughs> No, it was Dirac. Okay, it was okay, Dirac. Sienna, Sienna Paul Adrien. <laughs> Paul Adrien Maurice. Dirac. And then Dirac. Yeah. Yeah, uh, close. Uh, probably even correct. <laughs> All right, one point each. Um, <laughs> um, what was Dirac's interpretation of the negative energy solutions that he found? Bloop. Uh, I had Sienna first. Yeah, I blooped in pretty fast there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he interpreted the fact that you could solve it for a negative um, as evidence that you could potentially theorizing uh, anti-electron, the existence of the anti-electron. Yeah. Um, Alistair, do you have anything to add? Uh, I was going to add that because of this, he kind of hypothesized that maybe it was the proton that was this anti-electron, but that couldn't be because of the difference in mass between the two, but he was kind of like, someone else figure it out. That's, yeah. I, I've done all the other work, so. He's like, I did a lot of thinking for the day, and I would like somebody else to think about this, please. <laughs> yeah, can somebody yeah. else pr- please take over so that my brain can have a rest? Yeah. Um, that was really good from both of you, and one point each. The bit that I wanted to add was that he thought that there was a sea of these negative energy mm-hmm. um, particles um, in the universe, but all of the states were filled. Right. Mm. Right. That's true. He did. Think okay. That. Moving swiftly on. 
Okay, who discovered the positron in 1932? Loop? Go, Sienna. Uh, it's a question mark at the end because I'm not actually sure. <laughs> okay, that's um, fine. But maybe Oppenheimer? No, good try. Oh, darn it. Okay. Asta? Oh, I was going to say Oppenheimer. Oh, no, I remember, I remember, I remember. Oh. It was Carl Anderson. Yeah, good job. Yeah, okay. Um, I knew that you would remember that, the yes. thing, the name. Very Swedish. That's the only reason. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where he's from. I don't think he was Swedish. No, but that's. But when you I said it, I thought of like our time in Sweden together, and that's the reason why I could like pull it back. It's a very Scandinavian name. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, what was what is the interpretation of Feynman and Stuckelberg? Bloop. Go. Um, the interpretation of Feynman and Stuckelberg, I'm, I, be- I believe, I may have cut out for part of this, but I believe what I caught was that their interpretation of these anti-electrons, positrons, I guess, is that they could be traveling backwards in time. Yeah. Oh, exactly. right. Ha ha. Um, <laughs> pay more okay, attention right, next let's... time, Alistair. I've completely nailed this quiz. <laughs> wow. Ha. Yeah feels good let's see if we can get alistair to catch up I'll, I'll let him i'll let him bloop in first okay alistair can you describe are you just trying to give me questions to give me enough points to tie it yeah. up i because we like to end on a tie yeah because, because <laughs> I, okay, okay i think okay. you can i think you can answer this one anyway can you describe a bit of this uh of the experiment i was talking about Sure. Yeah, I we were just talking about the experiment. So (laughs) they created anti hydrogen and held it in a magnetic field. Yeah. And then released it from the magnetic field and measured how it quote unquote dropped or like what direction it moved in after um annihilating. Measuring the annihilation products from it interacting with matter. And then doing a bunch of complex statistics to see how it was being affected by gravity as it was annihilated. Yeah, essentially. I think that's a very good answer. Nice. Thanks. <laughs> I think we're tied now. Yeah, I think definitely. That ties it up. Definitely. Yeah, I can't think of another question. I was trying to come up with something like, "What's your favorite source of antimatter?" or something. But um, yeah, what's mm. your favorite source of antimatter? Tomatoes. Mm. Okay, that's a pretty good one. I'm a big mm. fan of of a tomato. Sienna. My favorite source. Wow. I don't know. I don't know if I have a favorite source of antimatter. Okay, well, um, I think the point has to go My there. sister, I guess. Oh, that's cute. Aww. Oh, that's so Producing cute. Producing nieces and nephews to make me antimatter. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> She's a source of <laughs> antimatter. Oh. <laughs> We're back to this joke. I was so ready. <laughs> what goes around comes around. I was so ready. I meant... <clears throat> So you mean like real antimatter? Like <laughs> well, she Why does also both? produce. I do love humans. I think humans are great at producing antimatter. Probably humans are my favorite source of antimatter. All right. Well, I think that you're a bit like soppy, but um, I will give you the point anyway. I was very ready to give it to Alistair when he said tomatoes, oh. but then you were all cute and said that your sister is your favorite, your favorite source. And uh, shout out to my sister. And even if you are soppy, then you still get the point. Well, at least it ended on a tie. Mm, so. Well, it almost ended on a tie, except that I gave the tiebreaker to you. 
So at least you won. I like to believe that all of our quizzes end in a tie, no matter how anyone does, <laughs> because we all made it to the end. Yeah, that's true. And we all gained some knowledge along the way. Yeah, and that's the real prize here. And you know what? It was the friends that we... Annihilated along the way. <laughs> <laughs> the friends we annihilated along the way. Yikes. Thank you for listening. My name is Beth. I'm Alistair. And I'm Sienna. We have to give a massive thank you to Ellison, who created the music. Go and have a look at his Bandcamp. And if you want to know the sources for this episode, you can find the link via our link tree, which will be in the episode description. We hope you enjoyed the anti-show. Listen in the next one. And keep on producing positrons. <laughs>